Hi, this is Dr. Joe Nowinski, author of Recovery After Rehab, A Guide for the Newly Sober and Their Loved Ones. And it's my pleasure to be talking with Josie on Rebellion Dogs Radio. As you've heard, Joe Nowinski is back. He has finished his book, Recovery After Rehab, A Guide for the Newly Sober and Their Loved Ones. We're going to be talking about a bunch of studies he's looked at. We're going to tell you a little bit about the book itself. Let's have a look here. Medication-assisted treatment, what you need to know, homecoming, where the rubber meets the road, preparing to move forward, rethinking, enabling, and codependency, post-rehab fellowship, and how they help. We'll be talking a lot about that today. Creating a recovery lifestyle, double trouble, substance abuse and mental health, healing damaged relationships, what if it doesn't work, analyzing slips and relapse. I think it's a great book for a lot of reasons. One of the reports in Recovery After Rehab is from University of California from the Alcohol Research Group. And they had 349 participants, 65% male, from both private and public treatment programs, 10 different treatment programs in total. All of them had no previous treatment involvement and they would be doing follow-ups in one, three, and five-year periods. So they would ask, how often have you had a drink in the last 30 days? Zero, they were recorded as abstinent. Anything else, they were recorded as not abstinence. So they looked at what they call four different AA careers. Low involvement, which meant mostly going to AA in the first year. Medium AA involvement, an average of 60 a year, so that's five or more a month. High involvement was uh, 200 meetings a year, that's 16.6 a month. And declining, that's someone who started off in the high, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, the tourist, buy all the books, go to all the conferences, and then they uh, tail off to an average of six meetings per year by the fifth year. So at the five-year mark, the lows, low AA involvement, 43% of them stayed sober. I don't think that's awful. Uh, medium involvement uh, improved their outcome rates 66.6% at the one in three levels at one in three year time frame. And then by the fifth year, the medium involvement, that's 60 meetings a year, was uh, 79%. And high involvement had an even higher one year rate of abstinence, which was 86%, but it fell down to 79% at five years. So whether people were at a medium AA or other peer-to-peer -peer pace, or whether they were at a high rate, four out of five stayed sober. And the declining group, uh, well, 79% of them stayed sober for a year when they were going to meetings. And uh, by the fifth year, 60% of them were still staying sober. So 
People came to AA, got what they needed, went back to their active, busy, engaging, meaningful life, and six out of ten of them stayed sober. So, I mean, what does it tell you? If you go to more meetings, you improve your outcome rates. But getting sober and learning what you need to in AA can go a long way. And of those declining AA careers, they did have lower outcome rates, but over half of them still felt part of AA when they were interviewed at their fifth year. Here's another study. This one is a Stanford University, 363 participants. They all are people who called for help, needed some sort of treatment. These follow-ups were one year, three year, eight years, and 16 years. That's a long longitudinal study. They were self-selecting. They could pick any of these three tracks. One was just go to peer-to-peer -to -peer groups. One was get treatment and go to peer-to-peer -to -peer groups. And the third was get all the professional help from treatment. Forget about AA or any other peer group. And uh, they found pretty much the same thing. The longer the AA involvement, the higher the outcome rates. So uh, number two, and this is people who had both treatment and AA, they had the best outcomes through 16 years. And some of the threes, these are people who just, they wanted the professional help, but not, none of that, you know, mumbo jumbo step stuff. Some of them started going later, but they didn't have outstanding uh, results, not like the people who went right away. So some of these people who picked the no AA, of course, they could have had a bad impression or bad experience with uh, AA in the past. But yeah, 16-year study, that'll tell you a lot. Uh, 2014 Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment uh, reported on this study. It's a nine-year study. Uh, 1,945 participants, uh, either completing in or outpatient care. This is from uh, Kaiser, uh, their uh, nonprofit. And follow-up periods were one year, five year, seven year, and nine year. And they would be asked how frequent they attend AA and how frequently they have drank since the last uh, uh, check-in. And all of these people, they'd been through treatment. They uh, were middle-class America. They all had some sort of insurance plan to cover their treatment. And it included AA, CA, non-12-step. Here's something uh, right from the book which is kind of interesting. These results make it clear these results make it clear that it's not being sober that somehow makes a person get involved in AA or another fellowship that supports abstinence. Rather, it's getting involved in a fellowship that accounts for recovery. The authors conclude with this comment, Importantly, our analysis extends findings to a diverse population of treatment seekers, namely men and women with alcohol and or drug use disorders who were uh, 
insured members of an integrated healthcare organization. Rigorous scientific research on the role of fellowships such as AA in supporting recovery from substance abuse is substantial and unequivocal. Still, AA continues to be the object of criticism. These critiques primarily take the form of personal testimonials from people who write about bad experiences and why they feel AA didn't help them. Indeed, these individuals may not have liked AA, but their experiences are not consistent with the evidence just reviewed. Hmm. The audience this is directed at are people just coming out of rehab, but I found it totally fascinating and a lot of other people will. Let's go right to our interview with Dr. Joe Nowinski. Book just came out this month. And uh, there's some great studies that uh, you refer to, and maybe I'll uh, ask you a little bit about them. Uh, I mean, there's the Cochrane database study from last year that was uh, remarkable. Right. Uh, and uh, then there was another Stanford one. There were a, a few you referred to. Usually when you put something out, Stanton Peel and, and Lance Dotis are... Uh, the next uh, in front of the microphones, but we haven't heard from them. <laughs> right, no, haven't heard from them since the Cochrane report came out. I, yeah. uh, you know, sort of the the little spiteful part of me did send a did send it to to Lance, but I didn't get any response. Funny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that I've been doing this basically since the beginning of Star Wars, it seems to me, <laughs> that I've been, the, I started this at a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away with Project Match, literally like in 1990. And you're right, there was a great deal of skepticism, not only in the public, but among professionals who didn't understand anything about AA, uh, tended to think of it as a cult. I get that because they didn't understand it, uh, or few did, but relatively few did understand it. Their bias was academic. They liked to do research and clinical trials on their favorite treatment approach. Uh, AA was kind of out there in the universe. Nobody had studied it. And so there was a lot of prejudice against it. And there still is. You're right. You know, you've got Stanton Peel. You've got other people. Most of those people, Lance Dode, Stanton Peel, you know, if you dig a little deeper, they're selling something else. You know, yeah. they're selling their own favorite uh, approach. The Center for Optimal Living in New York City is another example where they're selling something called integrated harm reduction therapy. Right. And the appeal, there's two appeals. One is, of course, that some of these people are just trying to sell their own program. Right. Uh, the other appeal is the hidden message that you don't have to quit. You know, come to us for treatment, whether it's moderation management or integrated harm reduction therapy, and you don't have to quit. Uh, and that's got a great appeal uh, to, to a lot of people. Who, who wouldn't pick that door number one, door number two, drink like a gentleman, 
uh, and uh, quit for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and abstinence, and they call it the abstinence model. But you're right, in the ensuing, what, 30 years, there has been a, uh, a flood of good clinical studies that people suddenly did get interested in, in AA and 12-step recovery. And so there is a whole body of evidence that I was able to keep track of because of my own ongoing involvement in clinical trials. I've had the pleasure of doing that uh, most recently on the Zuni reservation here in the, in the United States. But uh, to keep uh, track Tell of me that, more about that. Well, that was a, it's an interesting clinical trial in which uh, the intervention is more like in, in my book, Recovery After Rehab. It's, it's intended to have an intervention with significant others of substance abusers. Yeah. which is a huge problem on every reservation. Yeah. Um, and the intervention is aimed primarily at working with the significant others to help them get their substance using partner into treatment and then for what happens after that happens. It's been very challenging, partly because, uh, because substance use is so rampant. AA, for example, does exist on the reservation. Right. Uh, so does Al-Anon agree, uh, but it's, it's not plentiful. I mean, so there's AA. Sometimes people have to go off the reservation to get to an AA or Al-Anon meeting. And the other issue that we've come up with, to be honest with you, is a cultural issue where in the Native American culture, uh, first there's a strong value on loyalty and it becomes a very difficult issue when I'm training therapists who are all Native Americans also mm -hmm. to try to get the significant other to confront the substance abuser, for example, uh, or to say, uh, I'm not going to give you any money for, for booze. It's been a real issue because uh, their culture is uh, values the loyalty so much. They consider it loyalty or betrayal right. to some extent to yeah. do that. Uh, and I get that, but um, that's pretty unique to the Native American culture. But, but what's really interesting, not to go on with this too much, is that uh, there's tremendous parallels between AA and Native American culture that I've come to realize over the years and working out there. One of which is that Bill Wilson was influenced not only by the Oxford group movement, you know, which has to do with the idea of public confession, the healing power of confession, which is found its way into the 12 steps, but also some of the Native American uh, tradition, cultural traditions that some of those elders out there feel was influence, they influence him. For example, the use of talking circles in Native American culture is a typical way of dealing with a problem. The family or the community gets together and solves the problem collectively. It's very much like AA turning over to the group very similar. Uh, another interesting thing is that the tradition in Native American talking circles of using the, the talking stick. Yeah. Where somebody holds a talking stick and talks and people listen. Yeah. And then they pass it along and they pass it along. Well, the equivalent in AA is no crosstalk. Right. So there's so there's a, a, a lot of similarities. So that's been an interesting uh, clinical uh, trial experience for me. But also there's this whole plethora of other research. Like you mentioned, the Cochrane report was a breakthrough 
there was an earlier Cochrane report, you probably know, maybe a decade ago. Well, that- yes, and, and they concluded that there wasn't enough documented evidence of right. AA's efficacy. Right. But and then as you alluded to, other people jumped on that and said, well, see, AA doesn't work. And that's not what they said. They said no. we need more study. They said, and they also said in that Cochrane report that it was probably equally effective to the other treatments that they looked at. Yeah. It, it said there was really basically not a lot of evidence for any of these treatments, the cognitive behavioral therapy. But of course, the critics jumped on that. Uh, so I see it doesn't work after all. And then, of course, the more recent study done by John Kelly and Keith Humphreys of Harvard and Stanford looked at 27 clinical trials. So now there is a whole body of research. Now, and and that was like funneled down from, you know, the best science amongst them, right? That's right. There are even right. There are even more trials and studies. But the Cochrane report is very, very rigorous, rigorous, you know, so these were. 27 that made it through all the hoops, and they concluded that AA slash 12-step facilitation um, is indeed very effective and more effective even than, say, cognitive behavioral therapy for long-term sobriety, and also more cost-effective. Way more cost-effective, and there's no waiting list. You can get into an AA Zoom meeting every day, any, any hour of the day, pretty much. Correct. And therapist time is used much more efficiently because yeah. like 12-step facilitation, not to do a total ad, but that I developed, is really designed for the therapist. In 12-step facilitation, the therapist is not just a case manager. Yeah. You know, not just somebody you're assigned to as a therapist and you, you meet with them once a week and you talk about whatever you want to talk about. In 12-step facilitation, it's very targeted and the therapist is much more in control of the agenda. And the agenda is to work on facilitating involvement in a fellowship uh, through coaching, uh, education, uh, mentoring, you know, whatever it is. But the focus is very specific. And so it uses, I think, therapist time much more efficiently. You know, uh, you can meet with a, with a therapist, say, for 12 sessions aimed at facilitating involvement in AA. And so that's the treatment phase. But then AA, you know, takes over after that. Once you get, once you get involved in AA. At low cost. And it's for people who like it, like, and I understand some people with social anxiety disorder, you know, uh, that might not be an ideal uh, solution to uh, that particular problem for them. See, that's where a therapist can come in because yeah. a lot of people who have social anxiety disorder might walk into an AA meeting and never go back. Yeah. But if the therapist is working with someone on the goal of getting them into it, the therapist can help work on social anxiety by role-playing, coaching. Uh, uh, a technique I use a lot is pairing if you're in a group, having somebody who's socially anxious Seek, seek a volunteer in a group to go with that person to a couple of meetings. Mm-hmm. So help them sort of get through the hurdle of social anxiety. And that's where therapy can be helpful. That's where the coach, the therapist, the facilitator can help uh, make the experience of, of the AA handoff 
more or, or NA or smart right. recovery, um, uh, more yeah, yeah, women through sobriety, uh, yeah. your own fellowship that is for, for agnostics. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I have no case against any of those fellowships as long as they are their goal is pursuing abstinence and they utilize group support to do it. For me, that's what it takes. And if a woman feels more comfortable in women for sobriety, great because they have a great program yeah, and they are abstinence-based and they use group support to get there. So, uh, you know, that's fine with me. Now, uh, you, you mentioned abstinence. And one of the things the uh, Cochrane database uh, study uh, reveals that, uh, of course, AA has positive uh, outcome rates for long-term abstinence. But even for people who do relapse, and you talk about relapse to the families and newly sober people who are reading your book, right. the Cochrane database studies show, like they measure AA's effectiveness in a much more liberal way than AA members do. If someone relapses, they go, well, wait a minute, what are the uh, you know number of days uh, right. drinking, and what are the amounts they consume? Right. And they find that from going to AA, even if there is uh, recidivism, right. that their uh, binges aren't as serious. Correct. The effects on the family aren't as serious, so right. they don't always end up in the hospital. Right. Uh, there's that walk of shame of getting the newcomer chip. Which maybe doesn't have to be. Maybe AA culture could sort of embrace that as yeah, uh, so. part of the individual journey. I agree. Some people have said to me that they don't like that newcomer. They walk into a meeting and they feel it's a social hierarchy, and the people who have more sobriety sort of look down on those who don't. But researchers approach it differently. But interestingly, research, one study out of the University of Connecticut showed that after going through like a 12-step facilitation program aimed at AA, that roughly 80%, two years later, roughly 80% of, of the people were like completely sober for at least 90 days before their last assessment. So researchers look at things like that. They look at total abstinence, which is important. Yeah. And that study found about 40% of total abstinence. Uh, John Kelly of Harvard found that uh, after three years after, after this project match, uh, the number of people who were totally abstinent were twice as many as in the other research. But researchers look at total abstinence, uh, percent days abstinent. Yeah. Because they're looking at that. How many, well, on the average, how many days a week did you drink before you went into treatment? So that's seven. Yeah. Uh, now, three months later or a year later, you're drinking one day out of 50. They're looking at drinks per drinking day. When you do have a drink, how much is it? So they're basically looking at sort of the whole adage of progress, not perfection. Right. It's sort of a researchers kind of embrace the idea. They don't minimize that a slip is a slip or a relapse is a relapse, but they sort of try to look at it more broadly. Uh, and, you know, AA has always accepted this whole thing of progress, not perfection. AA is always, the culture of AA 
has always said the next, if you have a slip, the next best thing to do is come to a meeting. It's not, I don't think AA has ever said, if you have a slip, don't darken our doors anymore. You know, they never say that. I've never heard it. Some people obviously feel ashamed. Uh, They compare themselves to others who came out of treatment the same time they did. They're five years sober. And this person's working on six months again. You know, and they compare, right? You know, and right, I get but, that. But, but it isn't have, AA per se that's sort of creating that hierarchy. Is I it? don't think it is. I think it's people's shame. Uh, I have, uh, if I have a client who recently had one, who had six months of of sobriety through AA and naltrexone, and had had a minor slip one day where he he just gave in. He was hungry. He was tired. He gave in. He got a pint and, and drank it. So we talked about what to do next, about the, the, the circumstances, what to do next. He's going to meetings. He's talking to his sponsor. But I said, you know, let's not throw out the last five months, 29 days of sobriety and feel like, you know, you're a total failure because you're not. Let's build on that. And I think that's really, really critical. And some of the critics, you're right, about AA, they tend to do that. They tend to make a false assertion that if you slip, you're not welcome at AA, that AA demands total abstinence. And I defy anyone to find anywhere in the AA literature that doesn't recognize the fact that this is a difficult journey. Well put. And it's like uh, someone who's being treated for depression because they still have sad days, right. no one's going to conclude the treatment isn't working. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And so the, the idea is, that's, and that's where therapy can come in handy because it can, the person who can, has a slip maybe has a therapist who's AA smart yeah. to, walk, to work that through, uh, which brings up this, this issue of what happens after treatment. And that's what my, new book is about because the motivation for it, as you probably know, I've developed, spent most of my career in developing treatment programs for substance abuse, like 12-step facilitation. The idea being to help somebody who has a substance abuse problem get recover, get into recovery, let's put it that way, and stop drinking. But uh, I've always been interested in what happens after that because uh, too many people confuse rehab with a cure. You know, probably you because it. of the price tag, uh, a family yeah, looks at you know, and you read it in the papers about some celebrity who's gone back into rehab as though they failed. So I'm all thinking, well, what did they do after rehab? Yeah, because rehab, from my point of view, is only the starting point. It's a good starting point, but it's the starting point for what I would consider a kind of long journey. And in my book, I take the position that although the main responsibility is rests on the shoulders of the substance abuser for their recovery, their loved ones are equal stakeholders in it. I mean, they're also stakeholders in this process and they can become collaborators in it. They're not responsible for the recovery, but unlike sometimes people tell me they're told to stay out of it. Some family members have told me they're told uh, by a therapist that, you know, uh, let your wife deal with her recovery and you stay out of it. And I've heard children 
told, and they really resent it. They really feel like they're being cut out of the picture. And the whole point of the book is chapter by chapter, issue by issue, how can families become equal stakeholders? Beginning, by the way, with what the newly sober person thinks when they come out of treatment or rehab. Right. You got you to deal with that at the get-go. So people will come out of rehab saying that they that they want to you know commit to sobriety but on some level they're still not sure they still harbor ideas that they, maybe they can maybe get, they can have one once in a while or you know a cocktail on the weekend wouldn't hurt i volunteer in aftercare and like i'll hear that well maybe a glass of champagne at new year's eve and right. when new year's eve comes around they don't because they they're sort of uh they ingratiate sobriety as it's right. not a punishment because they're an alcoholic. It's a lifestyle. Right. That's great if they can get to that point. But yeah. some people, I think, uh, they say they can talk the talk when they're in rehab or treatment sometimes. You know, I've yeah. heard people say, you know, and they stay sober for a while. They leave rehab and they say, I'm going to stay sober. And maybe they even go to AA. But their private thoughts are different. Yeah, they're thinking they haven't really taken that step one. Not really. In the book, I basically confront people with that at the first chapter where where, where what you're thinking now that you're leaving rehab. Are you thinking that you can't use cocaine, but you can drink that a painkiller now and then won't hurt? Uh, and if that's your thinking, that's going to compromise your recovery. And I, and I ask people to, to be actually to take the step and be honest and talk with their loved ones about what's their real thinking about. Yes. As opposed to, you know, talking, uh, you know, how, having two voices in their head, but only one gets spoken with uh, their sponsor or their loved one or right. whoever else. Right. Right. And uh, I think that's, that's, that's an important point because I've, I talked with a, a, a friend once who said he was sober uh, for about two and a half years before he take the first step. He, he went to meetings, he had a sponsor, but he really wasn't sure that he was an alcoholic. He wasn't really sure that someday he couldn't drink. Right. And he, he came to realize that sooner or later that was going to trip him up. I've heard people say that they felt like they became part of the fellowship for the first time after doing step five, you know, mm -hmm. they would say they were an alcoholic in the room, but they had that ambivalence. Right. But the actual process of taking inventory, looking at your maladaptive coping mechanisms and, and verbalizing them to someone else, really owning them. Right. Really puts you in a, a different altered state than you were right. when you were, well, you know, well, yeah. I'm, I'm planning my escape. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's true because the AA program values honesty uh, about you know almost all else, you have honesty and humility. And to begin my book, I have that dialogue about getting honest about where are you yeah. really thinking. Uh, in another chapter, I ask the, sub, the newly recovering person to get honest with their loved ones about how they groom their neighbors. Mm -hmm that enablers don't wake up one morning and say, 
I want to enable your alcohol use or I want to enable your prescription drug abuse. Yeah. The substance abuser systematically grooms those people. Yeah. Using, you know, and so getting honest in another chapter is where it's this sort of like, I think of it as this first step towards like a moral inventory almost, you know, getting mm -hmm. honest with how did I actually make you into my enabler? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, I'll, uh, you know, it's one thing to be honest. It's another thing to get past our blind spots, right? You know, the, uh, right. the, the things we're doing that we don't even know we're sabotaging our, our own, you know, we've got a desire to stay sober and then efforts that work against it. Like, why is that? Right. Right. So I think that's part of the recovery process for me, getting, getting out of rehab is the beginning, but don't mistake yes. for a cure. Getting uh, out of rehab is the beginning of the journey. Getting, getting honest with what you're thinking, getting honest with the enablers in your, in your uh, system. Um, also talk about medication assisted treatment, which is. Uh, yes, absolutely mm -hmm. important. And it's uh, misunderstood in the rooms and uh, between some counselors. NA especially has uh, sometimes issues with uh, Suboxone or uh, any sure. sort of, you know, medically assisted well, recovery, their, right? Their methadone and Suboxone are opioids. Yeah. So I get it why there's, yeah. a, there's some hesitancy. Uh, I certainly get that. And the question becomes, what... Uh, where does medication does it fit into recovery? Does it have a role at all to play? Uh, I'm very pragmatic, so I think yes, it does have a role to play. But I also think that you can't that methadone or suboxone are not a recovery program. I mean, they are uh, they are an aid, and I think that's the thinking is coming is shifting toward that. You know, you get something like Suboxone, like methadone years ago became the, the very popular, the be all and end all. You know, just give somebody methadone and they're better. Or give yeah. somebody Suboxone and they're better. But there's issues with that. First of all, there's compliance issues, you know, that people often don't like to talk about, that uh, people don't always take their medication as prescribed or they, or they abuse it or they sell it. And the other thing is that uh, addiction, as you know, has profound effects on our lifestyle. Yes. Oh, and so what do you do about that? Mm -hmm. You just leave it the way it was. Do you just leave it in shambles as it was, you know, before you got sober? Or do you need a program like the 12-step program to sort of rebuild your life? Yeah. And that's what that's all about. And uh, one of the things I find from my own experience that where your book is vitally important is the way it engages a person's network, right? You know, like part of recovery capital is how well does your environment support your recovery? Does your job support, uh, you know, recovery lifestyle? Does your home support a recovery lifestyle? And I have seen in, uh, again, uh, just not, I'm, I'm no professional, but I volunteer in a treatment center and they offer, at, for the cost of treatment, they encourage uh, um, loved ones to join the uh, family 
uh, mm-hmm. care program where they right. get educated about addiction themselves, right. you know, and some of the fallout to loved ones and some of the, the own pathology that comes with that and right. the role of working as a team. And, and, and they, more than the uh, addict being uh, treated for substance use disorder, have this, well, we paid you the money, you fix them kind of attitude. Right. <laughs> right. And sometimes it's professionals who have perpetuated that. You know, uh, leave it to us, so go take care of yourself. And I always like to compare it to, say, like cancer treatment, cancer diagnosis. You know, family, somebody in the family gets a cancer diagnosis, the, 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 you know, the, the, the doctors don't usually say, leave it to us, you just go do your own thing. Yeah. I mean, usually the whole family, the oncologists involved, it brings, draws in significant others to the whole treatment plan because they're stakeholders in it. Yeah. And I see, uh, I see addiction as very comparable to that. And telling the stakeholders to stay out of it um, isn't helpful. And the whole theme of the book is to, is to have it be, again, it's not the stakeholders, it's not the significant others who are responsible, but they are stakeholders. So let's not ignore the role that they can play it's similar to what happens in AA. Research shows that by being involved in AA and have people in AA help others, like you know, like people who are further along in their sobriety becoming sponsors and helping others, the research shows that it helps them stay yeah. clean and sober. So it's like you know, broadening that social network and having collaborators or stakeholders works both ways. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, everyone's gonna do well by it. Kids, uh, spouses, um, in some cases, I suppose, if you can bring a work partner, uh, in yeah. involved in some cases, or your EAP, or right, you know, it, you might have right. a if you're and a doctor or a lawyer, you might have someone still, um, urine testing you for a few years, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, sure. I, I encouraged one one uh, couple I worked with. Uh, I encouraged the wife to get a uh, al- you know uh, alcohol sensor. You know the the and that uh, she was really fearful about her husband drinking, and so they agreed that every time two things every time every day when he left work he would text her that he's on the way home. Yeah. And so he, she would know how long it would take him to get home. So yeah. uh, that's one thing. Second of all, that he could blow into the Alka-Seltzer whenever she wanted. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like she became responsible for his sobriety, but they worked as a team. And he went along with that. And he said, because he saw it was going to help him. You know, it does bring up the issue of damaged relationships, which I think I recognize in the book. You can't ignore the fact that addiction really destroys people's lifestyles, including their relationships. So you can't always expect people to like the original title for the book. Where's the band? Yeah. Yeah. You can't expect family. The person who's coming home for rehab uh, is on a pink cloud and they can't expect their family to have hired a mariachi band and, you know, to welcome them on the, the front door. There's a lot of healing that has to be done. And, uh, I see that a lot with kids, especially like teenagers. When the, 
what happens with addiction is that the, the substance abusing the addicted parent becomes very alienated from their kids. So if they've been yeah. doing this from the time the kid is five to 15, and they've been sort of a very disconnected, uninvolved parent, what happens is the kids develop their own lifestyle. You know, yeah. they, they detach from the parent. And so the, the, the person comes home from rehab and one guy I write about told me that his daughter wasn't even there to greet him. Yeah. You know, he had a 12-year-old daughter. She was at, staying at a friend's house. She wasn't even there to greet him. Uh, and that hurt him very much. But I said, you know, this is what happens. You know, the, the, the attachment between you and your daughter has been broken down for so long. Uh, you need to be able to, to build it and what steps you can take to doing it, because that can, again, draw that person in to be a collaborator in your own recovery. You, you know, I, one guy I wrote about had two sons who were very detached from him, and, and they never had friends come over to the house because he was always drunk, and they got involved in their own social circles, and that when he came home from rehab, they didn't have, want much to do with him. And so he had to sort of reach out. Uh, I remember one example was one kid was you know, on a swim team. I remember that. Yeah. And he said to his dad, finally, you know, I'm having a swim meet this weekend. If you want to come, it would be okay. And I, I thought that was really great for the kid to suggest that because on the one hand, it wasn't too intense. Yeah. You know, his father could sit in the bleachers and watch the swim meet. Yeah. But at least his father could be there. And it was a first step towards you know, building that, that, that social network. But there's a lot of that that has to be done. And, you know, if you're just going to rely on, on medication, um, I think the same is true for depression. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Someone who suffers from chronic depression has damaged relationships. And you can't expect, you know, the antidepressant to heal all wounds. That's right. Only one person's taking it. <laughs> yeah. The rollout of this book, it's available in hardcover now. Right. Are they talking about uh, a more widely distributed paperback? Well, and when it's available in hardcover, and I think it's available as a Kindle edition. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned earlier on the publishing business; it's uh, changed a great deal over the over the years. So, will it come out in a paperback? It's almost a financial decision on the part of the publisher. Will they make more or less money if they put out if they keep it in a hardcover and it's doing okay, then maybe they won't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, and you know how many books sell over Kindle because more people are downloading they're, they're reading over the internet much more than anything else. And um, you know so that's the long term plan depends in large part on on the publisher just like they can. They gave me the courtesy of, of uh, consulting with me on the book cover. Right. But some publishers, they won't, they don't, they reserve the right. They don't even do that. You know, you see the book cover when they send you your copy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so this was uh, Roman and Littlefield was very nice about that throughout the process, including me. So they've been a pleasure to work with. Uh, but they're also, a sort of medium-sized publisher, which I think is some advantages because there's a little more personal involvement. Um, 
between a writer and an editor in this kind of a publishing. The big, I've been with some of the big publishing houses uh, and to be perfectly honest, you get to feel kind of anonymous. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and everything is in a state of change. This I learned from the music industry, right? The consolidation of record yeah. labels right. and right. the uh, new ways that people were consuming music. Uh, like, I don't know how long CDs will last. Most people rent their music now. They just pay for yeah, a service where they can listen to whatever they want, whenever they want. My they kids, I have uh, two kids in college, and uh, I don't think either of them owns a CD. Yeah. Yeah, that that tells you what's going on. Some band is going to be the last band to buy 3,000 CDs to sell off the stage. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they'll still have them... Uh, uh, when they, uh, you know, uh, leave the music industry. And 15 years later, they'll be worth a fortune. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. Now uh, uh, vinyl is making a comeback, right? People, yeah. People want so that's that. the way it is. With, I hope that it does well. I, uh, I, I'm fortunate enough that I have sort of a little bit of a platform myself that, you know, I do post on uh, Psychology Today and LinkedIn. Yeah. And I know people like yourself and others um, who are, are good enough to uh, talk to me about the book. Uh, and publishers do what they can do. But, you know, frankly, in marketing departments and publishing are shrinking. You know, they, uh, I've had some experience with bigger publishers where you get, hi, I'm your publicist, and uh, I've got you and 20 other books on my, on my desk to, to publicize. Um, so you can only expect so much from, from yeah, that. and they say, so tell me what your book's about, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope you would have known a little bit about that before we met. <laughs> uh, well, actually, it was such a, a great thing that this, the, the publicist for Roman at Littlefield contacted me, and she actually had read the book, yeah, and I almost yeah. fell off my chair. And well, they've they've lowered your your expectations to such a point that when uh, they do uh, something that is uh, minimal, it uh, gets applause. Uh, yeah. What about COVID? How has that changed uh, how this book is rolling out compared to say, you know, how it works and why that book you wrote about for the general public, lay people, why twelve step? And well, 12 -step I think what COVID has done. Uh, it, it, I think that actually in some ways it has promoted on, online book sales because people yeah. uh, are limited in what they can do yeah. at some extent. So I think actually more people seem to be, I've gotten more responses, say, to posts about this. I've only posted twice about this book, but I've gotten a, a large, large number of readers, for example, which surprised me, but I think it's partly because people are looking for something to read. But the other big impact has been on 12-step recovery itself, meetings. Yeah. Um, you know, the proliferation of Zoom meetings and how effective are Zoom meetings compared to face-to-face -face meetings. There's no research, quote, unquote, on that. And, and I think it's going to be hard to do it. But... Um, you know, I think that even I mentioned that that study on the Zuni reservation, uh, a lot of the therapy, I trained the therapists 
but a lot of their therapy was on Zoom with their clients. They, they had had to close the actual mental health center down because of COVID. So the only therapy sessions they're having were Zoom. Right. And, and I, my impression is that they were having, they were struggling with that mm-hmm. um, because clients were unfamiliar with it. Some people just didn't like it. Um, so I think that, I don't know, maybe you have some impressions yourself as to how has the pandemic affected the fellowship? Uh, our uh, last uh, podcast, I was talking to uh, a chap who um, lives in the UK from Australia originally. He's done a lot. He helped create a 724 women's AA meeting that's mm-hmm. been going around the clock for 18 months without interruption, where it's one hour meetings repeating one after the other, all around the world, all around the clock. Uh, He has a website that just posts all the new Zoom meetings. You can just go there and here's what's on right now this hour. You know, you want a men's meeting or you want a a Dharma recovery meeting. Do you know if if AA itself does that? Because I don't know whether AA itself has, has promoted that or... Uh, well, when he put the uh, women's meeting together, uh, it was uh, at the time uh, New York uh, Central Office was helping groups out with their large Zoom account and just sort of farming it out so people could get get their legs under them. But um, my experience has been I, I looked at the numbers and uh, AA in a year without any face-to-face meetings, added uh, over 60,000 members from wow. January 1, 2020 to January 1, 2021. That's so That's great. Because we know that the incidence of substance abuse has gone on yes. tremendously. Yeah. Um, and my practice, I have a small practice since I retired from Yukon Health Center, uh, I've kept that practice because I like it. I really enjoy it. Um, but it has transitioned to like partly rem- half remote and half face-to-face. A um, couple of years ago, I hardly ever had a remote session with people. I would get a call or an email from somebody in San Francisco saying, uh, gee, Dr. Joe, I read your book. Do you know any therapists in San Francisco? And of course, I have to say, no, I really don't have an international network. Uh, But and since the pandemic, I get emails that I live in San Francisco. Do you do Zoom meetings? And so I now have this clientele that's spread all over the country. Uh, And that's been uh, interesting. Uh, But I'm glad to hear AA has expanded because the substance abuse problem has expanded. Yes, that's for sure. It certainly has. And I'm sure it even helped the other fellowships more, right? Uh, in that they were already uh, on Zoom. Uh, like every meeting is a click away. So if you're right. sick and tired of listening to the same 20 people in your AA home group, you can try a Dharma recovery or a life ring or Right. You know, just mix it up a little bit if you're not too tribal. <laughs> right. Right. But the thing I worry about, well, I'm glad to hear those statistics, is that uh, I would have worried that 
because of the pandemic that although the incidence of substance abuse increases, that people would get more isolated, you know? And that's obviously the opposite of what 12-step recovery is all about. It's all about breaking out of the isolation connection and reaching out yeah yeah and i i see it on zoom you know it's it's an individual thing right for people who work all day on their computer at home isolated not in their office to spend another hour doing their aa in the same seat staring at the same screen you know they'd rather stick needles in their eyes right right they want to get back to their face-to-face meeting. And I understand that. But other people don't miss the traffic, don't miss the parking problems, right. you know, um, don't miss uh, having to put on regular pants instead of their pajama pants. <laughs> right. Well, that's, how hap- that's what happens with some of my clients as well, that I was surprised that I thought that once you know, I'm now at the position with people, if they're totally vaccinated, I can see them in my office. Yeah. Although I space it, there's always an hour between people. And I so I limit it. But I was surprised that several people said, no, they prefer doing it by Zoom. Yeah. They just yeah, don't, it, it, they don't it's like just driving, whatever. Yeah, for some people, a one hour meeting is a three hour commitment, you know, getting there getting parked, getting back and all that jazz, right? So yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's very efficient. I, I wish I have a dental appointment coming up next uh, Monday. I wish I could do on Zoom, but. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't mind that myself. <laughs> At least it would be pretty painless. <laughs> now, one other thing I'd like to say about your book and my observation of it as someone in sort of long-term recovery is it answers a lot of the questions that people come to me for. How long do I have to go to meetings? Good. You know, I'm, you know, getting busy at work. Uh, like, I'm, you know, and, and it really answers a lot of those things. Like it compares people who uh, don't go to AA at all compared to people who dig in and then wean off a little bit. Right. But even people going to 60 meetings a year, after a few years, have good outcome rates, right? They have very good outcomes. But the research that I, the reason I put it in there is, is to answer questions like that. Yeah. Um, I don't like this, can't answer the question about forever. Yeah. But I can say, look, there was one study that followed people for 16 whole years. Yes. And those people who stopped going were more likely to drink again. So that's information you should have. Yes. Uh, there's this other study that showed that people who were averaging 60 meetings a year after seven, seven years, they had an 80%, you know, sobriety rate. So that's information when you want how long do I have to do it? Uh, that's what I've The other thing I think that, that I just want to mention that I finished the book with is what happens if it doesn't work? What happens when somebody has a slip? What does the family do? And of course, the, the next best thing for the substance abuser to do is to go to a meeting and to get in touch with a sponsor. Yeah. But then the, the, the family as collaborators or stakeholders can have this dialogue with them about that the, the slip just doesn't fall out of the air. Like I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the guy who had six months and then was hungry and tired driving home yeah. So, and he passed his old liquor store, you know, so it has a context 
And I asked people to analyze that together as a group, like a talking circle, if you will. You yeah, know? like a talking circle. What were you thinking? What were your thought processes, you know, when you had this slip, you know? Uh, were you thinking that one can't, can't hurt? Were you thinking, I really need one? What were you thinking? The social context, where were you? Who were you with? And the emotional context, what were you feeling? Yeah. And I said, if you could have a dialogue about those things, what were you thinking? Where were you? Who were you with? And what were you feeling? That could give you a leg up. So this guy I mentioned, he's just changing. He's changing his route. You can try. I said, how hard would you be to change your route? And you just don't go buy your old favorite liquor store anymore. He said, well, it'll probably take me two or three more minutes to get home. So I said, fine. Meanwhile, you're still going to text your wife to tell her so she knows within five minutes of where to expect you. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but you can. And also, he was feeling tired and hungry. He had, had a yeah. long day. So I said, you know, if you look at the, it didn't just drop out of the air. Yeah. So if you can do that, I think that loved ones along with a substance abuser can get a leg up on besides going to meetings and talking to your sponsor, what can you do to prevent this moving forward? Especially if it's something that happens after a period of sobriety. You know, if you've been, you've been sober for a few months, then something happens. You know, just don't think it just happens. Some people will say, well, I just got an urge. And I'll say, well, that's, <laughs> that's okay, but it's not good enough. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it's that that's all you noticed, but let's that's uh, right. unpack uh, it a little bit. Let's unpack it a little bit and take a look at, at what happened. But I'm glad that you think the book is helpful because I do want people to think long-term. And a lot of the research that I cite has that. It doesn't tell people what you got to do forever, but it tells people what do we know from research? What do we know from people's experience? When they, when they go to these meetings, what's the correlation? What's the chances of, you know, staying sober? For example, if your goal is that you want to stop drinking for a few months and then decide if you want to drink again versus someone who decides at the beginning they just don't want to drink again, what's the chances of you staying sober two or three years later? Right. And the research shows you got a much better chance of staying sober two or three years later if you decide to begin with that you're going to stay sober than if you decide to waffle about it and say, well, I'm going to think about it in three months. See how I feel. Right. And, you know, so I say, you, you, I always say, you know, it's your choice, you know, you can do what you want, but this is what, this is what the research shows. It's going to be news to people in long-term recovery that they have longitudinal studies that go 16 years into recovery. It used to be five years was a stretch. And I'm, very impressed at the uh, attentiveness to this sort of these sort of long-term. I patterns. think it's been. I think those longitudinal studies are a blessing because, as you may know, in traditional like academic research, they would say expose people to cognitive behavioral therapy, and then follow them for six months. Yeah, and they say, well, look, they're doing this well after six months, and that's the end of the study. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what happens after a year or two years yeah that's right they're still in that uh, possible pink cloud sort of state uh, they are and the what the what the what the more longitudinal research shows is that whereas a cognitive behavioral therapy can be effective in the short run it tends to wear off whereas aa doesn't wear off yeah 
Is there a best way for people to get their hands on a copy of Recovery After Rehab, a guide for the newly sober and their loved ones? What Should they go well, to the publisher, go to Amazon? Does it make any difference? I think to you? Amazon, you can go online to any online bookseller and get it. Yeah. But probably, the obviously, Amazon's the most popular. Amazon, I've had people order it from, from England. So Amazon... Uh, is pretty ubiquitous. Yeah. And Amazon also offers uh, the online Kindle version, which is somewhat less expensive. Yeah. But like you're saying, a lot of people choose to read now using a tablet as opposed to a book. Roman and Littlefield does have a site, Roman and Littlefield. If you look up the publisher, uh, if you go to their site, you can buy books directly from them. Fantastic. Uh, we always uh, close out with a little bit of music. This is uh, Canadian Prairies on my mind. Uh, this is a musical act from uh, Edmonton, Alberta. Kane Incognito. Kane Incognito first came on the scene, I think 2017 maybe, to critical acclaim. Uh, they're working on a brand new EP called Eyes Wide Open. Let's listen to the single from that album. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. As always, share, link, comment, be part of the conversation. Be good to each other. Words so I can't think straight And I can't think straight Without Nothing else matters Oh, I spend that day with the sun Eyes wide open